Susan Felth, the Citizen Kane of podcasting. Modern man is confronted with so many movies. Which ones are films? And which ones are filth? In at number 95, it's the film that proves no matter how much media you own, how rich you are, or how many emerald mines your father had, you can't make people love you. This is Films and Filth, the Citizen Kane of podcasting, where we are going to get very pretentious today. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John here to pass judgment on the movie Citizen Kane. Um, I should put some detail into John there. That is John Champion from the Mission Log podcast. Hello. Yeah. Hi. Definitely not the biblical John. So <laughs> yes, thank you for clarifying. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, uh, I, I, I'm, I, I am biblical. I've been living for two thousand plus years, of course. Oh, that's so. very cool. I bet you have stories. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the mark of the devil. Okay. Oh, that's I'm good. the Luke like from that. a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Nice, okay. nice. Should I claim a better? I, I guess I'll just claim Matt Damon. There you're go. Matt. You're what has <laughs> you're what has no arms and lies in front of a door. Yeah, no legs. Matt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's that's <laughs> not with two T's though, right? <laughs> I I like to identify more with Matt paintings where we add the E, and we see a lot of in this okay. movie. Ooh, so we do. a very expensive car paint job. Ooh, yeah. Nice guitar finish, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, my guess... my thought on Matt is like, oh, that's that's a comfortable games console to hold. So <laughs> that's the classy option. <laughs> I'm still working that out. Okay, but you, you get like a nice like Matt DS. It feels really nice. The shiny ones. I'll oh, yeah. Fingerprints yes, everywhere. Yes. No, when I used I to do like, used... yeah, when I I used to do serious photography. Um, yeah, I I always bought the matte paper, not glossy. I didn't like photography on glossy. Which could be partly because of, like, say, this movie, you know? Like, the I mean, this movie. is like halfway to Matt, I think, right? This is like Pearl. This yeah. Is something I wasted money on. Anyway. Yeah. Maybe partly because of Citizen Kane. When I went to Europe at age 17 and I came back and all of my pictures were like a black and white, uh, pushed film, high speed pushed film on matte gloss should, paper. And my you mom should explain was like, to people what pushed film is. Oh, that's when I mean, you know eight hundred. Sorry, yes, that no one knows today, especially. That's when you had like eight hundred speed film, but you'd set your camera to sixteen hundred, so it'd look all gritty and crazy. And um, yeah, my mom was angry because it looked like I just visited World War Two. So, <laughs> I thought a pushed film was like a Disney live action remake where they push it on you, but no one actually wants it. Oh, it's, it's when YouTube makes a, a a documentary and Apple pushes it to your iPhone. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Where. Did you all start with this film? For me, I, for, I I had my serious film dorking around the year 2000. I think I was a little late in watching this the first time because um, I didn't want to, you know, it was the late 90s. So I didn't want to watch it on VHS and it took till 2001 for it to show up on a DVD. That's the one I watched last night, which apparently has problems, but oh well. <laughs> but um, I for sure watched this on TV out of sheer curiosity because they would 
they would show this on TV. I think the rights were sort of public domain-y in the, uh, as, as far as early as the 80s, maybe earlier than that. Yeah, RK was cheap, but, basically. But, mm. but yeah, but um, I didn't really appreciate it until I saw it in my uh, college film class, along with a few other things. Uh, Bergman, Fellini, etc. But I really, really grew to love it when I was given the proper context and also forced to sit in a room and watch it from front to back. Yes, yes. I, I'm kind of uh, similar, a li little bit all over the place. You know, I, I grew up watching old movies uh, whenever I could. And um, there was a summer that I lived in New York uh, you know, from Birmingham. Uh, but I lived a summer in New York when I was about 14. And I was really lucky that there was a revival uh, film house just down the street that had this incredible I, I think they probably did four different movies a day, every day. And, uh, and I saw all kinds of stuff there. Um, I didn't actually see Kane on the big screen that time, but it just sort of reignited my passion for old films. So Kane was right up there in a film class as well. Um, I've probably owned every version of it on VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, et cetera. It's one of those things that's just always been around, but um, like you, Mark, you know, getting context to put more appreciation around it for me really helped. Was that the film forum by chance? No, this was the Regency, which I think is long gone. It was like Broadway in 67, 66, around there. Okay, I, I had my own summer near New York where I got a... They basically had a Kurosawa series, and uh, I also got my, mm. the restored Metropolis. So I oh, had, had my oh, nice, cool. Uh, well, the the almost restored. I think they restored it a little more after I saw it. But uh, you know, most mm. like most. I think it was the one where they had a few scenes of text, and later they found that too. But yes, they yes, kept right, finding stuff right. in Argentina. I think. Yeah. Right. So good. They they keep finding stuff in Argentina. Oh, yeah, my. they keep finding German stuff in Argentina. It's so strange. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm 32 years old, and I watched Citizen Kane on Amazon Prime for the first time three nights ago. Whoa! So wow. very, very interested in your uh, first reactions, yeah. first takes. Well, yeah. Um, so yeah, the reason me and Matt's first podcast was a sci-fi sanctuary. I'm not really a film guy. I'm specifically like a sci-fi and fantasy guy. If there was a 1940s film about a giant snail killing people in a lake, I was waking up at 2 a.m. to watch it. But if there's a 1940s film about like a businessman, I didn't care. <laughs> this does use a shot from King Kong, though, in it, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, really? Which one was that? That's true. Uh, the the birds flying at the picnic scene is actually taken straight from King Kong. Oh, that's cool. Oh, I didn't mm -hmm. knew that. Um, so my my main knowledge of Citizen Kane, growing up as a big gamer, you'd often hear people having the argument. What is the Citizen Kane of games? Bioshock. Mm. The first one I remember was Metroid Prime. Yeah, Bioshock definitely it came up. <laughs> it comes up all the time, right? But so I went into this film. My main curiosity is like, what is the Citizen Kane of films? Like, what is Citizen Kane? What does it mean to be the Citizen Kane of something? And I, I still haven't figured that out. This was a very good film. I'm glad I watched this film. Um, and, you know as I alluded to with my introduction to this episode, I think it's still pretty resonant and relevant, but I'm still not quite sure what, what it did. Mm. Like I love King Kong and that's like eight years before this, 
And I, I can see a little bit how like cinematography has improved and storytelling has changed. But I'm, I'm curious to hear you guys sort of educate me on like why this film is so well regarded and is so important and what it meant for cinema. I love the way you phrase that. Why is Citizen Kane the Citizen Kane of cinema? <laughs> like, yeah. like, what does that mean when you use that? I mean, I, I, I always laughed when, um, uh, you know, Bobcat Goldthwait called Shakes the Clown the Citizen Kane of alcoholic clown movies. <laughs> uh, but, but it's like, but you know what that is. It's like, you know, that it is the, the apex of that kind of movie. But Citizen Kane has the extra burden of, being that representative for an entire industry. And I, I I guess you can easily make the argument that it's not because there are other movies that in other ways surpass it, um, maybe artistically, certainly financially. You know, there are all these other attributes that we could add to it. But I think it's a combination of things. It, it pushes the boundary, uh, pushes the envelope, uh, Technically, uh, certainly Orson Welles as an auteur, that was a rare thing at the time. And it's still rare in cinema. There are very few people you can point to who do have total control over a movie who truly get to make their vision. Um, I think if a movie has withstood the test of time, has current relevance, I think those are all important aspects. But, but there probably isn't... A, just sort of like a single one of those that would pin it in that position. I think we have to give it the the entirety of those things. I would also give Citizen Kane a bit of credit for the time that it came out, 1941. Here's a movie that is, it's a character analysis told from other perspectives that it has this weird sort of existential question at the core of it. Who is this person coming out at a time when most popular cinema was not that there was a lot of smart cinema being made, but there was also a lot of entertainment, just sort of candy. Let's get your mind off the depression. Let's get your mind off our potential entry into World War II. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of that stuff. And Kane didn't do well at the box office originally, I think for that reason, partly, because this was a heavy theatrical character study with a lot of, I, I think it's asking a lot of the audience. Um, but I think that's also one of the things that makes it stand out because then in retrospect, you can look back and go like, oh, okay, I, I really enjoyed all the, you know, George Cooker comedies that came out in the late 30s. And then here's this weird movie, but you know what? But that weird movie actually stuck with me. That weird mm. movie is the one that I can watch again and again and get something new out of it. Whereas if I rewatch Bringing Up Baby or whatever, like it's fun, but am I really getting something new out of it? So I, I think that's probably part of my answer to it. So something it reminded me of is when I first went back and read Dracula. Because mm. you think of Dracula as like the origin novel of vampire and horror or whatever you assume it's going to be very simple so when mm. i read it and it's told in like the form of letters and newspaper clippings and it's this really modern way of telling a story i right. was really surprised and similarly i went back to this and because it is 
seen as like this this originator of so many things. I assumed it would be a very simple front to back tale. And the way it's yeah. told, like you say, with these journalists going and speaking to different people and getting all these different sides of the story of different angles, different times. Like in a you know, the sort of way Nolan makes a film now where it's back and forth all the time. I was really pleasantly surprised. It'll be an interesting contrast where further up on our list we do get to Casablanca which was never, that's like the studio system at its best. They yes. were not going out to make a masterpiece. Everything mm -hmm. just kind of clicked on that one. So it's like, mm. it's it's cookie cutter, but it's like, you know, really, really good cookies where, yeah. you know, Orson <laughs> right. Welles is a maverick yeah. in, like, in the real sense of the word, like mostly barring Hollywood types out of here. Um, We'll get to the actors a little more, but almost none of the actors in this are Hollywood. This is Bernard Herrmann's first Hollywood score. Um, Greg Tolan's cinematographer had been around, but he was basically given carte blanche on this one, which cinematographers definitely did not get at the time. So I, I, I think there's probably... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I don't want to keep harping on the Citizen Kane of Games thing, but just one more thing. <laughs> you mentioned that it's so rare, uh, Orson Welles being such an auteur, and that's really interesting because in video games, whenever there's an auteur director, the phrase people say is like, oh, in films, there's loads of auteurs, but it's really rare that there's an auteur in games. Mm, I think, <laughs> no, no. Well, and, and even for Orson Welles, this is the only movie that he had that much direct control over it. That That's it. So this is his one great example of being an auteur after oh. that there is always some other compromise and and i think part of the the legend of citizen kane is also that a lot of people who work in the industry or have aspirations of working in the industry they see that as like wow that that really is the ultimate expression how in the world can a 25 year old write direct star in play this character over a period of what nearly 60 years, something like that. Mm. Um, how can one person pull that? I, I wish I were that good. If I really apply myself, maybe I could be that good. That, so that's always like the, the example, like, Oh, it can be done. Um, well, that's so and, interesting because, you know, but I feel like one of the themes of this film is criticizing like the, the the rich guy who thinks he's king of the world or whatever <laughs> right. and yeah yeah one of the criticisms of that is like the there's no such thing as a self-made man right mm -hmm. no matter how much you think you had a self you're a something man you had a lucky break you lived in a country which had roads and schools and right and like yeah right. the idea that even in cinema no matter how much the director's name is plastered over it there's no one man who made a film right Unless you're literally talking about Survivor Man, where he goes into the woods and films himself and edits himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like yeah. really interesting to me that this is basically the film is about, I mean, the film is about William Randolph Hearst. It's a, the film is sort of about a guy who goes and takes on the world. And it's made by a guy who took on the world by making this entire thing. And then William Randolph Hearst took on Orson Welles by trying to bury this. <laughs> and it's just sort of uh, folds. It's like a thing that folds in on itself. And I think a lot of the reason why Orson Welles wasn't like handed more stuff or wasn't handed more control was because this kind of wasn't appreciated until the late fifties, I think. Mm, yeah. Matt, do you want to weigh in on that? Cause I think that it was, yeah. because if you imagine, can you imagine how fast things would move during that period of Hollywood? Like 1958 would 
feel like just a different universe. Yeah, it doesn't get rescreened if it's not a um, you know, a big money maker. With this one, it didn't lose a ton mm. of money but at first, but it lost a little bit of money. So um its rise basically started um after the war, you know, they could start showing American films in Europe again, which they couldn't do for several years. So Citizen Kane showed in France. You know, the, the French just gushed all over it. And then um mm. weirdly it was kind of TV that did get Citizen Kane up on its legs in America because again RA, RKO would sell their rights for very cheap so anyone could show them and, and they started showing this on the TV uh, Mark just as a refresher can you give folks the summary of this particular film okay the elderly Charles Foster Kane is dead we open on his final moments in his massive unfinished estate called Xanadu as he utters the word rosebud and then drops a snow globe on the ground and expires Meanwhile, we are shown a newsreel that summarizes his life and massive success along with his complex relationship with the loving and or hating public. But the newsmen putting it together feel like it's missing something concrete on who Kane actually was. A journalist named Jerry Thompson is set to do research and interview anyone he could find who might know what Rosebud means. We follow Thompson as he talks to people from Kane's past, and we see Kane's life through a series of flashbacks interspersed between the interviews. We watch him as a child as he's sent to stay with a banker in charge of his inheritance. We watch him buy a newspaper business and set out to do the most good he can with it, which eventually develops into a media empire that consumes and embitters him and gradually destroys his marriage. We see him attempt to run for governor only to see his hopes dashed by the reveal of his affair with a singer named Susan who then becomes his second wife. We see him try in vain to manufacture an opera career for Susan that she never wanted, which puts a strain on their marriage. And eventually we see Susan leave Charles, sending his life into its final decline. Thompson ends up at Xanadu talking to staff whom are sorting out Kane's belongings. But nobody knows what Rosebud is, and he decides that a man's life can't be summed up in one word anyway. Finally, we see workers loading items that have been declared junk into a furnace and see that Rosebud was the name on Kane's childhood sled. It burns as the lettering melts away, and we leave Xanadu with a view of the thick black smoke billowing from its chimney into the thick gray night sky. Well, let's get granular with this one, I guess, and, and really get into the actors a little bit. I am curious how you feel about Orson Welles as an actor. I could, this is my I, second favorite performance of his. Right. Well, I know what the first favorite is. I know I know your first, but go ahead and you say it. You commercial. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think my favorite is the wine commercial. Now, I, I mean, do love the wine commercial. <laughs> ah, the French. Oh, he doesn't do anything? <laughs> no, like really. Um, it's. I think he does great here playing an older guy, and it's kind That's... of interesting and sad how it's like, we we actually got to see him age in real time. Um, I, apparently, he he was constantly like wearing like uh, corsets and taking weight loss pills to be slimmer in his youth. Like even he was during also this time eating period. two chickens for lunch. So yeah, so apparently, hey, his, who hasn't metabolism. done that? <laughs> I have. Um, no, but I think his uh, his metabolism just like got slingshotted to hell. It wasn't like um, it's kind of sad. I mean, but my kind of... takeaway as well, Mark, was going to be the way he plays the different ages. I, I, if you told me it was different actors, I'd have believed you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I couldn't, as a forty-five-year-old, I couldn't play a twenty-year-old and a thirty-year-old and a seventy-year-old mm -hmm. as well as he could at twenty-five. I right. It's it's crazy. 
Yeah, watching it again, I mean, the the number of differences in Kane's figure over the years, the makeup, the hairline, the clothes, it's all remarkable. And it really shows the, the height of that kind of attention to detail for makeup, because a lot of that stuff can look really hokey and theatrical and very fake to us now. In this, it really doesn't. They, they really pull it off in almost every scene. The other thing that really shocks me is his body language. Just from the time that you see him as this young, idealistic 25-year-old coming in to take over the newspaper, and his movements are very fluid, um, it, the, the dance scene for the party where it, he's you know on top of the world, that's great. You get to the end, and that scene where he's tearing apart Susan's bedroom is so sad, uh, heartbreaking and disturbing. And it's not just that it is this great long take of this person's just utter downfall, right? And unable to reconcile his own life, right? But watch his body language in that. He's got the makeup on, but his movements have changed. The way he uses his body is completely different from the guy that we saw an hour and a half before. It, it, that part of it is, that blew my mind again. That's one of those things that, again, watching it for probably the 20th time, it's like, I'll focus in on a scene in a way that I didn't focus on it before, uh, or bits of dialogue that I didn't really pay attention to before. So there's always something new in that respect when I watch. There were consequences to that scene too. Uh, sort of like Martin Sheen shattering his hand on the mirror in the Apocalypse Now. Uh, Orson Welles did the same with the snow globe and uh, people around were a little disturbed by his acting in that scene um, for yeah. a Star Trek reference sort of like uh, Avery Avery Brooks and uh, Far Beyond the Stars where the other actors yep. were like not comfortable around this <laughs> and uh, Orson Welles was heard to be mumbling to himself after the scene with a bleeding hand like I felt that I really felt that I mean I don't maybe he meant wow. his hand in that case but <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right 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 uh, but yeah, that was like for a second, I had this just brief thought, like kind of a practical thought. What if you flip Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles roles in this? That would have given Orson Welles a little bit more leverage to direct mm -hmm. and not have quite as complicated a part. Would that make it a better movie? And then I thought, nah, there's the voice. <laughs> I just, yeah, he's so, he's so made for this. It's, it's weird. I don't, I can't think of any other like director, writer, star who's like in maybe i don't know bruce campbell he wasn't a director like i can't think of anybody else who fits into a specific role like this well i mean luke yes you head. like unicron that's the yes, voice okay he fits in <laughs> yeah. unicron really well. like that part where unicron <laughs> hits his hand and it's like real it's terrifying i think wells has this kind of automatic authority and this uh uh, it, and this automatic charisma, whereas Joseph Cotton has this very believable uh, sympathy. I, I think you can really feel what he's going through in this humanistic way. And the character Kane, you have to have a barrier to that with the audience or else the whole thing about we can't figure this guy out doesn't work. Mm. <laughs> you know, and, and that's how Joseph Cotton is a great actor, but I, I don't know if the audience would have bought it necessarily if you flipped it like that. Also, like, it's 
this, you know, powerful control freak. So having the director play him makes perfect sense, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, mm-hmm. it's you will see Tommy Wiseau do the same thing when he uh, when we go over the room because you know that last scene. Uh, re- watching this this time, I'm like, oh, he just stole that last scene for the room, a part where he's like. <laughs> Knocking over the dressers and pulling panties out of them. Steal from the best. That's another direct homage. <laughs> yes, another great auteur who can't make another movie. Actually, I think he has, like, he has like a shark movie coming out or something. But Who can't make another movie if there is any justice on this planet. <laughs> yes. From what I've heard, he's very difficult to work with. Shocking. No. <laughs> so shocking. <laughs> Although, I mean, there are better author it might just be advancing age but it's hard you know we don't get much from a john waters or a david lynch anymore you know uh, i mean david lynch could probably make anything he wants to but i think he's sort of cool with just doing the weather every day and that's you know he's yeah. he's done a lot of achievement uh yeah he's got nothing to prove yeah john waters nothing to prove you know it's just like it'd be nice to see another film oh <laughs> absolutely maybe- or maybe you shouldn't make your last film. I mean, there's the Quentin Tarantino thing, like, I'm going to retire after my 10th film, you know? Like, I mean, the idea <laughs> that directors just don't have good last films. <laughs> I, I just think the idea is you shouldn't announce your retirement because how long, how many times has Miyazaki announced his retirement now? Like six? Mm. And he, has, no, he still has another movie coming out, I think. I mean, he, he good. He, he stayed retired he for a good six years this time. I mean, that counts as a retirement, I guess. I think it good. Good that he's making more movies. I'm sure they'll be great. Whatever he makes will continue to be great. But it's like when you announce your retirement, like Jay-Z announced his retirement in 2003. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. Just don't do it. Just don't announce your retirement unless you really, really, really mean it. Or just don't announce it. Just, just quietly do Sean Connery and just go. I was, gonna, quietly. I was about to say, did Connery announce his retirement, or did he just disappear? No, he just disappeared uh, into a beach somewhere, and you know, yeah, that's the way got, to do it. He got like fifteen years out of that too, so yeah, mm. <laughs> you know, good for him. Sorry, yeah. I'm actually now I'm bringing up my cheat sheet of uh, more more of the Mercury players here because well, uh, yeah. there's William Aland who we don't quite see. Um, you actually do see his face a little bit. There's one shot where in distance you do see his face quite clearly. And, and I didn't, you know, I did realize uh, after watching this, oh, I'm doing William Allen for the, uh, the, the intro to this podcast every week. So <laughs> just subconsciously, I went straight for that voice. You know, I mean, he was doing the news of the world or whatever voice as well. Right. So, but yeah. um, he was also kind of um, Orson Welles, kind, you know, uh, if not right hand man, like sounding board, he was an associate producer of the film as well. And uh, basically the guy Orson would uh, vent to. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I mean, he's uh, again, he's a voice, right? You you don't really see his face, but you do hear his reporter voice quite a bit. Uh, I am just looking. If someone wants to throw in something, go ahead. I'm looking for the uh, cast. I what happened to Charles? What happened to Kane's kid? Did he just go away? They either? mentioned um, kid and first wife died in a car accident. Oh, jeez! Oh, aren't you glad God. you asked? I totally missed that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure they say that in the the newsreel at the start of the film oh uh, okay 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 they they do yeah <laughs> look um, at me educating your <laughs> i learned but, you know it, it's so funny I, I i was watching this uh last night with family and um 
my my aunt who's from Florida was visiting. She was talking during part of the the opening uh, newsreel sequence, and when they cut back to a shot of uh, of Xanadu being in Florida, she said. Uh, there are no mountains in Florida. And I said, no, no, no. They just said it in the newsreel that he built the mountain. <laughs> like, <laughs> like he brought it. So. <laughs> a lot of little details, literally in every scene. Yeah. Well, there's the, um, there's, there's the long held thing where like, Oh, no one was actually there to hear uh, Kane say Rosebud. So, you know, I, see, people, I don't buy that. They I could have been around the corner. Around. Well, the yeah, which, the butler people. literally says, I'm the one who heard it. Yes, yeah. yes. So, yeah, when, yeah. People <laughs> would say, when people would say this to Orson Welles, he'd bring him in a little close and whisper, Oh, you're, you know, you're the first to figure that out. No one's figured that out. Good for you. Knowing <laughs> <laughs> damn well that the butler said he was there. <laughs> Good for him. Good you're for the him. first person to figure that out. Oh, Here's so, a bottle of Paul Masson. <laughs> Oh, I'd like uh, to think he had a few just in his jacket for to pull out and give it to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah so it's like watching this, it doesn't just parallel, you know, people who are blowing up rockets left and right and destroying social media websites. But it's like, mm. I feel like we have more Citizen Canes now than we ever have. Like, this could be Walt Disney. It could be. Um, I mean, you could if you use plastic surgery as a metaphor, this could be a lot of people. <clears throat> oh yeah, sure. <laughs> you, you, your your list got short just because you didn't want to say names. I get it. Okay. I don't want to say I don't want to shame anyone for. I'm sure that it's like they didn't sign up to accidentally just go a little too far in the direction because someone, you know, operated on them maybe in bad faith. Mm, right. Okay. That that then that could be five different people, of course. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I could see. I feel like I could see Taylor Swift directing this um, remake of this, starring herself, and she would probably be harder on herself than than uh, Orson Welles was on William Randolph Hearst. It's tragic. <laughs> Luke yeah. Taylor, had you support that uh, Taylor Swift remake of Citizen Kane with I, her as actor, writer, director, producer? As long as it has songs, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it has to have songs in it. It's like uh, I don't know what's the metaphor for the opera because she actually can sing. I guess maybe that would be uh... no, but um, people who can sing are the best at playing people who can't sing. Mm. That's a good point. I'd, yeah, I, the, it was totally lost to me the first couple of times I saw this. Like the uh, the fact that his wife wasn't a good singer. The Wait, voice, that's pretty interesting. The voice was dubbed in by an opera singer uh, singing a tune in the wrong register. Oh, okay, there you go. Or like like a high tenor or whatever, and they gave him like yeah. soprano to sing. And then wow. um, we'll, we'll talk about the music some more, but uh, Bernard Herrmann was like, there is no opera intro that works for Kane's wife. Like, because mm. it needs to sound like the orchestra is beating her down from the start while she's going at full blast, right? Mm, so, right. He, mm. so he was like, I don't like opera. I don't want to write an opera, but I have to write an opera for Citizen Kane, right? Not even for Orson <laughs> Welles. Like, as the music guy, he had to write it. So mm -hmm. that little bit of opera you hear is actually original opera. So uh, for the dramatic situation, I mean, those, cool. those are that's great. Yeah, yeah, I love cool. those details. And like you, yeah. If you didn't really, I guess, if you're sort of tone deaf, you could still just look at people's reactions. They're just kind of like, mm, <laughs> no. That uh, the opera sequence, I think, is so good. Just the the 
absolute chaos on the stage, all that buildup. You get all the information you need to leading up to that curtain going up on that first night. And what I love is I, I think it's one of the only scenes that we get the same scene from the reverse angle. So I mm. love that the first time we see her, it's everybody around her in this really tight shot and it slowly pulls back and you get all the stage hands running around and the set pieces coming in and a little time goes by and then you get the same thing because now we've switched over to uh, Susan's story mm. and we get that from behind and the same chaos happening and all, it, it just, ah. Uh, I, I sorry, I'm gushing too much. But, no, it's fine. Uh, it's a totally podcast gushing. or allowed. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, <laughs> it's, a it, it's, one, it's one of those things again. Yes, the Citizen Kane podcast. <laughs> but it is one of those things that jumped out at me again last night. Uh, is just uh, how much information they were able to get across purely visually in that short time, and then give us an entirely different perspective from a different character on that same scene. Mm, so well done. How big is the crowd in that scene? The audience. Think about that. That big. There's no audience. <laughs> the audience There's is no wide audience. only. No. Yeah. They're, they're, okay. you know, yeah. Save money. There are no extras in the audience. There is no audience. They just nice. imply it nice. and you think it's there. So um, I, I should shout out that actor's name is Dorothy Comingor. Hopefully I said that right. Her last name seems difficult to say in the same way mine seems difficult to say. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And these are all, you know, imported from mostly imported from New York. Uh, the first wife, Emily Norton, is Ruth Warwick, who was mm -hmm. also from mm -hmm. New York, cast because Orson Welles said he needed a lady in the role and there were no ladies in Hollywood. <laughs> oh, my God. I wow. love that. I love that. Like they can't just act like lady. They need to be a lady. They need to, I need be to, I need to bring them in from the East Coast. Yeah. I mean, she's wow. nice. She definitely doesn't make the impact that uh, the character of Susan does, but we do get the uh, breakfast table montage, which is just uh, pretty. Yeah, that was dumb. I mean, again, the, the entirety of relationship <laughs> told in one room. It was, yeah, a uh, lot of fun. In, done in reverse. They started in full makeup, and then someone the the makeup artist would just come and um take a few take bits it off until they were not no makeup uh keep in mind that um people are like you were so handsome and sis and canny the worst one's like i never looked that good at age 25 that was makeup <laughs> 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 so uh the makeup guy he didn't actually get credit because of hollywood system rules at the time and mm -hmm. uh I don't know. I just I feel like this is a, a one where you'd have to shout out names when they need to be shouted out. And I'm still going through a very long cast list of every extra. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, this is this is a a film that's been written about and documentary about from every possible angle. So I guess I don't, I don't think anyone is not listed. Maurice, Cid Maurice Siderman. There we go. Okay, just uh uh, he did not get an on-screen contribution, and he probably should have because he was the makeup. Like we said, you feel like you're watching a 78 year old man. You know, it's relatively convincing. The the yeah. credits generally were pretty short on this one. I thought the in all movies of this vintage are pretty yeah true. Yeah. No, but <laughs> I think don't. because because they're at the start of the film, sometimes they feel really long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just saw the film Tar. Have you seen that yet? No, it's yeah. about to come out in Japan in like a week or two. Uh, it's fantastic. I highly recommend it. That's what it. I've heard, yeah. Um, it's pretty, it's a kind of uh, lineage. You can draw a lot of lines from Sis and Kane to Tar, but the uh, credits are 
a lot of credits at the beginning that just are tiny words that take up a huge amount of the screen and it's mm. really really interesting Here's well a... speaking of lineage from citizen kane to films <laughs> mm-hmm. you guys know more about films than me what what were the innovations of this why is it heralded as like well creating the art form so much one of the first things that someone told me that stuck with me is the uh like the camera that goes in through the skylight at the club. Oh, I noticed that. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was not a thing. Um, I, I was actually going to, I, I had a pre-made answer for your question oh. there. Um, Go ahead, please. This is, uh, for Luke's question, uh, that <laughs> this is a special effects heavy movie. 40% of yeah. the shots, according to Robert Wise, the editor, also director of Star Trek Motion Picture, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> He said 40% of this film has some kind of special effect. And on some reels, it's 80%. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of them are practical in part so they could edit as they were making. That's why we have so many long right. shots. That wasn't a Hollywood thing. Um, I, I mean, I don't want to get too in the weeds, but uh, let's take the scene where uh, uh, Kane is getting his twenty-five uh, age 25 inheritance, right? Mm-hmm. So the Hollywood thing to do is to have an establishing shot of the room where you see the actors close ups uh, on the people speaking, maybe a medium shot with two of them speaking. This is one shot. Orson Welles is standing 25 feet behind in perfect focus (laughs) because they're shooting on high speed film, as mentioned before. The, The set has been built on a platform. So the camera is actually in the floor looking up maybe not that scene but there are scenes a lot of scenes where the cameras in the floor i, I know up. some in the newspaper yeah. office where mm. yeah. yeah yeah they drilled holes into the floor for some of the shots yeah. so like the scene massive it, holes so you have two you have one guy like 16 inches from the camera one guy's maybe three feet or someone else is 20 feet behind and, and when you listen to them speaking you can see the ceiling in a lot of these that's really weird think of how many old movies you can see the ceiling they didn't build ceilings it was just right like, yeah it's a soundstage and, that's where the lighting is right so mm-hmm. um it's it's interesting because those are all i guess practical special effects and then later lots of uh film fades and stuff when they're driving to their beach picnic they're in california so there's actually mountains on the right so the ocean's real the sand's real the cars are real everything to the right of that is a composited matte painting Mm. (laughs) but it's just a shot of people driving in the beach you'd never think of that as a special effects shot you know (laughs) yeah um yeah uh so the effects are are mind-blowing and i i love those shots where you break every sort of established rule that that even we fall back on today every uh, established rule of cinema of just letting the camera linger in these Mm. really wide sometimes very uncomfortable shots think to the end of the movie when they're at xanadu and you've got susan up front kane way in the back of a room but you're just letting the camera sit there and you as the audience feel the discomfort of that Mm -hmm. distance instead of pushing in and getting coverage and getting every little detail love stuff like that uh the non-linear format of the story that's a huge deal um to be nonlinear and to be told from multiple points of view, to do all of that at once in a movie. Usually, you know, even if you're going to tell a nonlinear story, usually you have an omniscient camera uh, or an omniscient POV. Mm. And this is that all goes out the window. And I think it all serves absolutely to, uh, to support the thesis of the movie. 
So I, I think those things make it truly innovative. Uh, and I love the effects that you can't tell are effects. Like I, I love, of course, the the camera going through the uh, the El Rancho sign on top because you can tell that it's a model now, uh, although it's still very seamless, very well done. I would say it's better done than that shot opening up the cage where you go in on the model of the Enterprise and you composite that with the bridge. <laughs> this yeah. is more effective than that. Um, but it's the scenes that you can't really tell are effects. You just know that something is a little weird, just mm. something is a little off, a little surreal about the scene. Um, I also think, you know, this is kind of rare at a time. Of course, 1941, Wait, was it 40 or 41 that The Great Dictator came out? Um, these are very, very few movies in that time that were specific, political, personal. You could call it more satire on Chaplin's end, but I mean, this is a real movie of commentary about mm. a contemporary living figure. <laughs> Um, and you can see how that would make, well, Wells a bit of a target uh, yeah. at the time. Uh, you, you know, this is Hayes Code era, era, era that we're in. And most movies are kind of scrubbed a little bit clean, a little squeaky clean for the audience. And this, yeah, you, you don't have you don't have things that break the code. But you do have ideas in here that an audience in 1941 are surely going to get about the guy that he is. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm looking for the right word. It's not a lampoon. It's not a satire. It's it, 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 well, yeah, it, it is a very pointed critique. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, a I'm trying to think who is. Yeah, who is that person today? Is it Rupert Murdoch? Is that it, was my first thought. Know, it was this Rupert yeah, Murdoch? Yeah. Except I don't yeah. think that Rupert Murdoch has like any the, of this passion. The reason, I think the reason I brought up, I'll say it out loud, Musk, Kane's obsession with people loving him. Mm. Mm -hmm. Like you yes. hear about these meetings that Elon Musk is having where he's like, I own Twitter, I've made all these changes. Why are I, my tweets still not getting liked? And then people are getting fired yeah. for turning around and saying, people don't like you, man. Right. Yeah. And right. I'm, yeah. you know, as big a critic of his now as any, but like probably 10 years ago or however long ago, I definitely thought, well, that guy's doing cool stuff. He's doing a lot of great things with his billions of dollars. I'm looking forward to the future of this universe. And now yeah. it's like, oh, God, he's just tweeting. So somebody does a report on something he did and he tweets or he uh, responds to them with the poop emoji. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Not thinking of things that NASA thought about 60 years ago. Right. You got to blow up a few rockets before you go in the works. Look, he had to launch it on 420. Okay. It was funny. It was really funny. Laugh. Ha ha ha. The people will laugh. Poop emoji. They'll laugh when I tell them to laugh. I could get slightly pedantic if you want. I'm pretty keen up on what the controversy was and how it rolled out right now if anybody mm. wants the details on that yeah do it yeah i'm, I'm yeah, yeah. stuff okay um so spill the tea matt orson <laughs> Welles shows up in 1939 with the best contract to this date in 2023 i mean no one has gotten like you get to do everything we can't tell you what to do you get final cut that still doesn't happen much right no. so mm. Holly hollywood For a 24 year old kid 
Yes, Hollywood yeah. was not yeah. happy with him first. Uh, but he got support from a gossip columnist, uh, Hedda Hopper, and uh, geez, I'm forgetting her name. Last name's Parsons. Uh, uh, Luella Parsons. Thank you, yeah. Luella Parsons. They mm-hmm. they liked him. You know, the little, the, the middle aged biddies were like, "This is our our young man, right?" Mm-hmm. Um, so they go through the film. Uh, the film's made. Uh, Hedda Hopper sees a rough cut. She was told she'd get to see the first screening, and she decided that was a rough cut, and um was like oh my god this is an attack against hearst right told parsons parsons wrote for hearst so you know it's unclear if hearst himself ever directly did actions it might have even been his son trying to protect the family name Mm -hmm. or just like local newspaper guys like uh you know trying to set up stories to make you know move up in the ranks like i think it was oklahoma city or something where the police were like, don't go back to your hotel room. There is a 14-year-old girl there and a photographer in the closet. <laughs> don't. So he didn't Whoa. go. He went straight to the train station. Wow. Uh, things like that. But um, it, it, yeah, the idea, again, Hearst, if he did see himself in this, there were a lot of details. There were a lot of details from other magnets of the time. Like Hearst was one of the models, but mm. uh, like earlier, you're like, oh, it's Musk, it's Musk. And I'm sitting here like, well, there's five, at least five people you just described. Uh, same thing mm-hmm. with Susan Kane. There were, mm-hmm. you know, at least uh, five people or more that he was looking at. So, yeah, no, it, it's it's the whole that class, right? Yeah. There was the, <laughs> you know, the ones who should be first up against the wall. Like there's one where he um basically implies that um Susan's lover should be like killed. Uh, he's like, well, Hearst won't get angry because he w- then he'll be like admitting he does that kind of stuff, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, granted, he himself did not. It's not even clear if he ever watched the film. That's why they were showing it in 2012 or 2015 or whatever at the Hearst estate. So um mm. the, the company the in January of 1941 because the, the movie was supposed to come out in January or February. Uh, Hearst put a boycott on anything RKO. Uh, there was talk of, with, with talking to Louis Meyer at MGM of just buying the film and burning it, which <laughs> what they started having like private, a lot of private screenings. That's where the Hollywood people started to turn around. Like, this is a great film. So, you know, by March, if they had actually bought the film and burned it, that would have um, not made people happy. Enough people right, yeah, at that yeah, point, yeah. like you just burned a masterpiece, you idiot. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> They do a lot of promotion in March, but still don't put it out. It gets a New York premiere in May, plays in seven cities selectly in June, has a general release in um, August, still banned by, uh, I think, Warner's uh, theaters weren't showing it. Of course, anything Hearst-related was not showing it. Um, Hearst didn't actually mention Citizen Kane in its own publications until they had to because it got nine Oscar nominations. That was the first time a first <laughs> publication finally had uh, to write. Uh, they, they did have ads in the fall where it just said a major Hollywood production, but it didn't say what the movie was. Uh, oh so when, once the Oscars came around, they had to write the name Citizen Kane. So I, wow. I guess that's the nutshell version of, of the, uh, uh, at least what I read of the, of the scandal. Wow. So, but yeah, this movie did get basically, you know, like, um, uh, you know, bopped on the knees, right? So yeah, I I was pretty surprised when I like this is the first time I've really tried to actually read <clears throat> read up on the connections, and I was surprised at how closely it is, how close he had a mistress and all, and everything. You know, it just seems the 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 major differences were like he inherited the land where the. Hearst Castle was built from his father, who was rich first. 
Yeah, her mistress was. was Marion Davis. They were together for 30 years, relatively happily, although mm. she did become a, um, you know, a, a heavy, heavy alcoholic in the 40s. Uh, she did have a successful Hollywood career for 20 mm-hmm. years. Uh, so she was not a bad actress. And one of the reasons Susan is made to be look so bad is uh, because so he's like, no, no, they won't confuse this with Marion Davis because this is clearly mm, yeah. a different person. Uh, yeah. And there were People... other magnates that did have uh, that did build opera houses for their wives who couldn't sing. There, there were other, Hearst didn't do this, but other <laughs> I can do this. imagine I could imagine <laughs> yeah. um, there is uh, something I'm trying to find it, but I read something where Orson Welles claimed that he, uh, introduced himself to Hearst before the film came out and he invited him to a screening and Hearst declined and <laughs> Wells said something like well uh, Charles Foster Kane would go to the screening yes <laughs> <laughs> which is a weird thing to say because Kane is not like a super sympathetic character but still right um, I don't probably so, saying that 10 minutes later in reality <laughs> I didn't um, I didn't read up anything on the film for this podcast because i knew i was going to be with three guys Good. who do know their stuff i thought i'd come in as the the audience so i didn't really think of it as being a specific i didn't know it was specifically aimed at any one particular real mm. person i just thought it's a character study of you know like i said this this idea of the very rich person on this layer above society you know the problem with the capitalist society essentially um, and on that level, I think the film works fantastically. So I can't even imagine watching it in 1940 and knowing, oh, this is such a specific and interesting critique of this dude. <laughs> it would be like a whole other level. Uh, I, I think that's what, you know something that really points to it being timeless is that it is cool if you know the history and you know exactly who he was going after here and what an audience mm-hmm. in 1941 would have thought. But the fact that there are so many things, I mean, we're all sitting here watching it last night. And as soon as that newspaper headline pops up after the election, fraud at polls. Oh, my God. Oh, I had to I had to pause it and walk away for a second. (laughs) This is so close to home (laughs) and so prescient. Um, Yeah, but it's stuff like that. But but also just this grander critique. Because Kane never won the election, until mm-hmm. you said that, I hadn't even thought of Kane as a Trump figure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's another one you could you could direct it. Yeah, yeah. I guess yeah, the, the just... difference the difference that Trump proved was that like no scandal can break you when you've got that kind of momentum yeah. behind you. Right, right, right. It's yeah. yeah, it's a little different because he has sort of the contrarian vote. Well, but the, I guess. the, just, the, uh... the same. But the whole thing of like just picking the current guy and accusing them of being a criminal. Yeah, of course. And also, um, it hit me for the first time this time how absurd it is that his wife, the opera singer, was on the front page of every newspaper. Like, opera singer. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's that's yeah. ridiculous. Sells out. Like, yeah. You know, and and, and quotations, sellouts and quotations. Let's not forget that. That's a little yeah. inside joke. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> wow it's um but yeah this um the first couple of times i saw this well the first time i saw it and like really got into it was in the the 90s where there's before 9 11 there wasn't the 24-hour news cycle there wasn't Mm. the fox news spin going on there was you know rush limbaugh and things like that but they were still kind of fringe and now this has become much more mainstream and much more scary yeah 
and real. Yeah. <sighs> <Hey>. <laughs> that is uh, depressing. Thank we're, you. We're yeah. all sci-fi heads here for the most part. I will for the all part, actually. Excuse me. <laughs> but I was thinking, like, if you showed me the plot description of this, or even like showed me like the the script dialogue, give me a story synopsis, I probably would not be interested in watching this movie. Like, I don't know if this is really the most interesting story. Um, it's it is for me the charm is how it's made like the story itself is kind of like mm. you, know, you know um i'm trying to think what, what a modern analogy to this would be i like the aviator or something i mean that's scorsese you know, <laughs> I, I, I never actually mm -hmm. watched the aviator i mean maybe oh it's but it's pretty good it. it took me a while to watch it and yeah. it is pretty good um okay. i wish there were more scenes of him yelling things over and over because that was my favorite part <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, the story for this isn't really my kind of film, except that the music is and the cinematography is and the acting is right. The story itself actually leaves me somewhat cold. Mm. Well, I mean, it's I uh, mean, what makes a man. I mean, that can, you know, it's hard for any of us to relate to this particular guy, but it's I don't know. There's there's some truth in there for everybody. It's just I think a lot of times movies lean on making the main character the richest guy in the world because it's fun to play with your box of toys if it's the richest mm. guy in the world like batman keeps being made over and over because it's right. fun to make batman you can make batman do anything he can buy anything yeah yeah but what i'm saying is the execution of the movie does make me invest in the story does make me like mm -hmm. it you know so yeah yeah um, but like i said at the start of this i I hadn't watched this because it's not a film about a robot or a dinosaur or a spaceship <laughs> right. so no, I, I got what you're saying, Matt. I mean, it, it's a little difficult to get somebody sold on the idea of saying this movie is so great. It's a character study over, you know, from the age of 10 to 81. And that's what you're going to get as a character study. And it'll be really weird. I, like that's it, it's definitely hard to get excited about that and think there's really something to hook into there. And yet it is, I mean, in sort of the, you know, the, the Shakespearean tradition of it all, it's like you, you dig deep into a character like Lear or somebody had just see tragedy after tragedy, see the fall of this character from the greatest ideals to absolute decrepitude. That's what we get here. So it, it's, it's hard to put that into a log line that leaps off of a, an ad um mm. but enough people decided to go see it and talk about it and get into it I, I i think you know what i said kind of toward the top of this show was i think there every choice in this adds up to say something about this character that we should be able re to relate to and it, you know i look at it in terms of like the mission log morals meanings messages what, what do we get out of it and, and there's a sort of a, a a fatalistic part of it that i think is a little dark which is just this idea that people are alone and they can never truly be known it's like for all the people around Kane, for all the people who are interested in his story, for all the people who have dug into every detail, they still don't know the guy. Even the people who are closest to him don't actually know the guy. And partly that's by design on his part. And partly that's just the world around him, uh, uh, unfortunately, makes him that person. But there, there's a, a, a nugget of truth to that for anybody in life. But I think the other really interesting part is something that they spell out in the movie. You know, they spell out this bit that um, 
essentially it's it's not what you do, it's who you are at the end mm. of the day. And it's the lesson that Charles Foster Kane never, ever learns his entire life. And that is so dramatically expressed in those final scenes when they go on the picnic and he and Susan are just going at it and going at it and going at it. And she keeps saying, like, you gave me things but you never gave me who you are. You never gave me something of meaning to me. And he completely doesn't get it. So here he is being what he is, a guy with means, a guy with money, a guy who can give you anything in the world, but that doesn't add up at all to who he is because the who is kind of this blank. It's hmm. this, this empty cipher. And that's the tragedy of his life. So it's like, if you take something positive out of the movie, it's don't be that guy, <laughs> you know, yeah. unfortunately for the people who need to hear that message, they're not going to hear that message. This is well, and maybe that's a message that's even more true. So the, in, in 1941, being a big public figure was extremely rare, right? You were a mm. multi-billionaire owner of a newspaper, but yeah. the world we've constructed now is that we all treat ourselves like public figures. Yes. And I think people are yes. like, forget that who you people think who they are is what restaurant they eat their yeah. meal at and, you know, what brands they wear yeah. and what pop culture thing they obsess over. And yeah. I think a lot of people have forgotten, like, who's the human being underneath all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Again, uh, tragically relevant. Yeah. This is it's, partly it's one a, of those things. Sorry. Go ahead. I, I was actually segueing. Uh, oh, I was just going to say it's one of those things where. Maybe he might have had a conversation with one person somewhere in his life where he said, you know, I loved my sled when I had when I was a kid. It was called Rosebud. And he, <laughs> you, you know that he never had that conversation. It's like he never right. he never talked about like his own Who inner he life. Is. It oh, was always he... just like, hey, got your nose. <laughs> I got your toothache medicine. <laughs> Mark, I, I, I forgot to leave out the... Um possibly apocryphal not confirmed thing and and by the way i'm not this smart I, I just over the past few days i need to say the guy's name is citizen kane a filmmaker's journey by harlan lebo so this ah. is why i have all these pointless facts stuck in my head today but um very good uh, i mean there there's a point behind closed doors uh the thing that supposedly tipped off uh the hearst family is that herman mankowitz Mank, not not Mank. Orson Welles, came up with hey, Rosebud. Rosebud. Came up with Rosebud, and there is a rumor wow. that Rosebud is um, was William Randolph Hearst's uh, nickname for Marion Davis's uh, underparts. Oh mm. wow! Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. that is true, then, now that would have been Herman Mankiewicz doing that, not not. Oh Orson my Welles. god! Yeah. If that's true, wow. I'm like, okay, I see why maybe they got a little pissed. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. right. Um, my segue yeah. was going to be, though, I'm going to go with the, the force idea and suggest that maybe we get some of the real Kane through Bernard Herrmann's score, his themes mm -hmm. being the Rosebud theme and the Destiny theme, Kane's Destiny theme, um, which I don't know, I guess that's still observational, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's Bernard Herrmann. He's, he doesn't miss, right? And, yeah. and John, you were just mentioning uh, about how impactful the last few scenes come across and um there was a talk with bernard herman in the early 70s where he said 
yeah, because it's it was film music, I didn't have to just be like, I have to take an orchestra and write a score, right? So I would use weird combinations of instruments uh, near the beginning. I think the first version of the Rosebud scene at the boarding house is just basically eight low woodwinds. That doesn't make sense in a huh. classical music situation. Yeah, You yeah. don't get a full orchestra until the last few scenes. Hmm. oh in the wow. opera of course I, wow. I, well actually even the opera i don't yeah. think it might be a full orchestra but yeah yeah, yeah part of it's yeah, like be. you know doesn't unleash all of it until the end um hmm. the other couple notes i from his talk being uh he still defends his wah, wah, wah trumpets 30 years later <laughs> so he's like <laughs> why he's not like, he said i would still do that today nobody wanted him to do it i think ever but uh he, he wow he wow. stood by it he stood by the trumpets like he also, saw that and then he had to bury it it's like no no trumpets <laughs> and the uh the rosebud theme uh which you first hear at the boring house he he basically says i spoiled the movie if you were really paying attention to the music because uh <laughs> the rosebud theme's right there when he first meets susan um who looks a little bit like his mother there's a theme a little bit like the rosebud theme oh. uh so you know the, i mean the, i'm a musician these are details i wouldn't get if i hadn't just like read a thick book so yeah, yeah. well we <laughs> right. we kind of grew up on john williams which is a much more heavy-handed approach than this I, yeah it's like although i i will throw um for the past four years because of covid three and a half uh i've been playing with the orchestra and we have been practicing dvorak's new world symphony endlessly actually two years we didn't hmm. play at all so realistically i've been playing it for one and a half years but uh, that's way too long to practice anything it's very stuck in my head and and the destiny theme is pretty similar to the some of the themes in that hmm. symphony which which is fine i mean that dvorak was the is his ninth symphony he stole a bit from beethoven's ninth symphony for his ninth right it's, it's a normal thing to do Actually, a lot of composers do that. When you do your fifth and your ninth symphony, you're supposed to uh, steal from Beethoven a little bit. <laughs> you need to see Tar as soon as you possibly can. <laughs> I guess that's <laughs> next week then. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah everything you just said. Film. <laughs> everything you just said relates directly to that. Anyway, <laughs> not going to spoil anything else. But... Okay, cool. Because I already forgot what I said. So that's cool. I wouldn't, you know, that you know, when you have this a preloaded rant, stuff. yeah, when you have a preloaded rant, you erase it after that, right? Oh, yeah, the orchestra stuff. Okay. <laughs> yeah. See, that one made sense, but sometimes Matt has his preloaded rant, and it's just like it's not related to what you said, but he just has to get it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't have the preloaded rants getting deleted. No. Um, but one of the best things I ever heard about any kind of criticism or writing is you don't have to express every idea you have. And Very it's something point. that I struggled with a lot when we first started podcasting. And now I've learned to like, sometimes just like, oh, the conversation's moved on, I can let it go. Yep. Are you okay that I just posted our Metropolis as a bonus? <laughs> um, no, the, the thing I'm worried about with the Metropolis is not that, oh, I, I try to squeeze in ideas. It's that we spend 90% of that podcast being horny for a woman who died before. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she did grab. She, she her is lovely. A lot. You know. yeah. yeah, she is incredibly yeah. beautiful. Yeah, but like um, a bit of a wasted opportunity to talk about like an all-time masterpiece. We're just like, yeah, I would. <laughs> um, that I, podcast I feel... was recorded many moons ago. That is okay. in the description. I put that in the description. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna dump something that's a preloaded rant. So the main interaction we see uh, childhood Kane have with his sled is he hits Thatcher with it. Do you think that maybe the whole thing is that he was just nostalgic for hitting Thatcher? Um, I would love to hit Thatcher. 
Yeah, me too. We might be talking about different Thatcher. I mean, Although they're both of them. There Anybody. Is, all, all of the above. Thatcher, yeah, yeah all of them. Yeah. There is a disturbing thing that, you know, Agnes Moorhead as Miss Kane seems like super cold, like she's giving away her kid and, you know, dad's mm. all happy and jolly. And, you know, the last line is like, you're going to have to give him a thrashing. No, that's where he's going, where he's going. So you can't do that anymore. It's like, whoa, I, that's a turn. So I think, yeah, yeah we uh, get we get so much from that short scene of of, of, of more complicated. Yeah. Complicated parents that, that we get from stuff from this era for the most part. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the scene is definitely like, oh yeah, dad's good. You know, he just has no power. It's like, oh no, no, he's this is his front here. Okay, so he- most yeah, most parents are suffering, and they are constantly tired and have a lot of different conflicting feelings about things, and they try their best. Most of yeah, them. Yeah, that's that's the kind of shorthand this is good at. Because if we had to have mm-hmm. five scenes to flesh that out, I would be bored by the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like you might say, oh, two hours, that's a long movie. But two hours to cover 60 years of a man's life, it actually goes by pretty quick. Yeah, this is the easiest watch we've had so far for this podcast. Yeah, probably <laughs> true. A lot of people would not, would be surprised probably at that. Yeah. But Got to watch yeah. a human centipede 2 full sequence soon. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> uh. Yeah, that, there are a few on the list. I'm like, oh, no, I got to watch that. Okay. How many segments go by in two hours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. How many segments? Um, As I understand uh, it, there's three segments in a standard human centipede. Yeah, that's okay. the first human centipede, but that's not the <laughs> what the oh, full sequence, ahead. and then there's the final sequence. Which I think the final sequence is like a hundred or it's something. It's like a whole prison, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, like we, whole prison. we did talk Every, about this. more people than are in Citizen Kane altogether in that human. <laughs> We did talk about that this for last it's week film. for the listener. <laughs> the listener heard the episode before Citizen Kane is Human Centipede 2 full sequence. So. Oh, so oh, they're coming into Lord. this one like, oh, I'm glad the Human Centipede stuff's out of the way. <laughs> oh, uh, any more preloaded rants before we uh, pull the wheelhouse into our, our, our final summations? Uh, just one more thing. I think I already done a couple of rants, but I, I just think that like what John was saying as far as referencing Shakespeare, that part of what makes this movie great is that it kind of moves like a play, but it is a story that you couldn't tell with a play because mm-hmm. of the, the story structure, the montage. It also reminds me of Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is one of the first movies I've seen where I'm like, mm-hmm. you couldn't make this movie with film. Like you have to have digital to do this many cuts. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. you know, it's um, it's oh, really nice to see. Oh, is it that movie? Interesting. Okay, he's getting a delivery. It was your rant finished. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's pretty much it. I'm just saying that this is a great film because it justifies its oh. existence as a film. Okay, Lucas left the pot. Oh, there he is. Okay, <laughs> I don't have a delivery. I have a policeman. Oh, that's exciting. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You hope I, I don't. He speaks English because I barely speak Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know. Does anyone want to say this isn't a film? Uh, no, this is uh, this is film as film as hell. So yeah, this is Citizen Kane of films. So I want, <laughs> let me pose the uh, question slightly differently: Is Charles Foster Kane filth? No, nah. he's just human. He's a he, no. yeah. He's <laughs> a, he's very human. Yeah, human yeah. With poor decision making skills. I guess he had a lot stacked against him, and he. Uh, 
Right, well, yeah, this might be my last appearance on the podcast because maybe I'm about to get arrested. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. While he's doing that and hopefully coming back, um, yes, yes. Why don't we find some? Uh, Mark, do you don't happen to have any one-star reviews queued up? Do you? Oh, um, start talking for a minute. And I'll get one. Okay. I okay. I I was thinking of of the other one. Did I actually say Greg Tolan's name? Since we've been talking so much about the cinematography, yes. I feel like if we get yes, through the podcast yeah. and I don't say his name, that's that's you probably yeah. an issue. Um, yeah. How? Uh, what is okay? I'll, I'll ask the old DVD geek then. Uh, how, yeah. What what is the best release for this one? If, if for people that want to find like the pristine one with the best features. Ooh, oh my god! I I. I wish I could remember. Look, honestly, my advice is just go uh, go find the most expensive release. That's probably the one you want. Because um, I, I probably own it four different ways, and they're all in boxes. I wish I had a good answer for you. But honestly, just load up, load up on the special features. Load up on anything. There's one where uh, Ebert did a commentary, which was excellent. I think that's on most versions that you can find now. Um, anything that has behind the scenes materials, take it and just take the time to go through them, please. Cause now, now that I've watched it on streaming for this, when I get back home to LA, I feel compelled to go back through and grab those, uh, home video releases and check them out again. Oh, and I would also say watch Mank. And I would also say watch, uh, what was the RKO, it's the documentary that has RKO in the title about the making of Citizen Kane. It was That's on HBO. What I wanted oh, to that watch. was recent. Um, yeah. Oh, oh was that recent? Okay. Yes. Well, it's yeah. within the last. It's within the last ten years. It's probably like five, six years ago. No, because I, like I was, that. I was like wanting to watch one that was on the second disc of the uh, 2001 or two or whatever it was released, which I didn't bring that to Japan with me. I only brought the first disc, which does have the Ebert commentary, but. Um, yeah yeah but yeah i made up for that by reading the book i guess so <laughs> um so all of those and i i would say uh rko 281 that that's the the name of the movie um i would say i i also like to mention a movie called the cat's pajamas that was made by peter bogdanovich uh eddie izzard um uh kirsten dunst and the late edward herman playing uh, William Randolph Hearst. And that is about the story, the time that Hearst took Charlie Chaplin and Marion Davies and William Ince out on his yacht. And one of them did not come back, William Ince. <laughs> and uh, the rumor is that William Randolph Hearst shot him uh, by accident in a jealous rage over Marion Davies having eyes for Charlie Chaplin. So if you want a little historical thing about Hearst himself, I recommend that movie because the performances all around are great. So uh, that, that's all your supplemental material for Citizen Kane. Okay. I th you heard the police in the background. I don't know what's going on. Uh, yeah, we did. <laughs> we did. Um, Everything's okay there. God, there are so many one-star reviews. There's just, just it's are there any it's proper impossible. Ones? Is there a good proper possible? One? I'm just trying to find one that doesn't reference Family Guy. <laughs> oh God! Oh, oh! I, one thing is, I definitely uh, not written by Bernard Herman, but you know what is his name? It's Mr. Burns. I could never get that out of my head. <laughs> oh yeah, that too for sure. Because I saw that first. <laughs> okay, I've got weird when it's it's Charlie Kane. That doesn't sound right to me. I've got one that I think is okay. Uh, should I go ahead and do it? 
I guess we'll wait a moment. Maybe I'll hit a point. Okay. <laughs> Late night future Matt here. Not only did I not edit anything, but I added this because I decided the whole affair was funny. Should we mute Luke? He has to. Oh, I can mute Luke, can I? Okay. <laughs> I mean, don't mute him. I don't know. What do we have to? What if we have to go save him? You have to go save him. Oh, from the oh, police. Okay. I don't know. Sure. I don't know what okay. I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. okay. What do you have? Ready? Yes. Citizen Boring by Jacob John Taylor One. No, this is fair from the best movie ever. I like most that are entertaining. This is bio movie, and they tend to have no entertainment value at all. This is biopic about a man who reigned a newspaper, about good thing came to him when he was young, and how bad things came to him when he got old, and how he died saying Rosebud. Find got the amazing mystery of why he said it. That is if you care boring. Citizen boring, that is what they could have called it. I personally do not care why he said Rosebud. I could tell you why, but I do not like spoilers. All <laughs> thou, I am basically telling you not to see this boring crap. Well, save big thrills for movie, sorry, save big thrills for people who want to find out. This is one of very fellow movies I have seen that looks like a horror movie made in those day, but it's not a horror movie. The horror movies in those days were great. But there were some boring crap made, and this is one of them. Overrated boring crap at that. Good acting, but what a boring movie. 15 <laughs> out of 31 found this helpful. Sorry, how oh, many? my God. 15. Okay. 15 people. That was, that was unbelievable. <laughs> By the way, I, I just checked to see if the uh, the Criterion version of Kane on Blu-ray has the Ebert commentary, and it does. And it also has uh, Peter Bogdanovich. So there oh, you nice. go. Um, that, if anyone uh, was worried, that was just the okay. new guy at the police station is going around introducing himself to people. Oh, oh how, okay. nice. Yeah. how nice! That's yeah, that's yeah. It, it, it's it'll not. Be, it's not the U.S. Yeah, in America, Luke would be shot now. Yeah, yeah they wouldn't have. They wouldn't have asked. <laughs> but yes, that is the thing um, that happens in Japan. Okay, um, I was gonna say earlier in one of those thoughts that didn't come out and didn't need to, but I was like, this doesn't have many biopic cliches. Which is no, I hate biopics. I hate biopics. Probably because this is unauthorized. I'll tell. I think I'll tell you the other thing. Bio. The problem biopics run into is they want to explain everything, so they have to have the moment where he has his genius idea and blah. blah. Mm. And the point Mm -hmm. of this film is there's no explanation. People just do shit. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's like a biopic escapes that problem. Yeah. Yeah. It may. They make me want to research the real story, and then when I research the real story. I realize I see what they've cut out and I'm like, mm. this would have been better if they just told the story how it was. Right. But mm. there's some editing going on. Uh, well, this, this is, is actually weird. Very... Has already jumped to my favorite movie list. <laughs> I, I like Spencer. Did any of you see Spencer, for instance? It was like a fictional story about the royal family from uh, okay. the 90s. It's like, Interesting. Uh, uh, what's her name? Kristen Stewart plays Princess Di. Oh, okay, I remember her playing that role. I don't didn't remember anything about the it's film. There. Really, yeah, I, I liked it a lot. Uh, Johnny Greenwood soundtrack. Mm. It was just—it um, wasn't a real thing that happened, but it was real, like characters based on real people. Mm. So you just watch Queen Elizabeth like staring, like she's kind of judging you, but trying to be nice. <laughs> and Charles is like kind of just a creepy asshole, and you know, and Diana's just trying to get by. 
good stuff. Okay. Not a biopic. Right, right. I guess this one kind this one kinda is. It's it's a controversial it is. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's basically an unauthorized biography, which is like part of what caused it to get buried. <laughs> right. Any final thoughts on Citizen Kane while we're talking about Citizen Kane on the Citizen Kane of podcasting? <laughs> Quite good. I love I love Citizen Kane. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's one of those movies that it, somebody asked me not that long ago, uh, somebody who's very young and uh, asked, like, is it really as good as people say? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it, it's critical to understanding kind of film history and film language, because so much that's in there not only broke rules, but made new rules that people follow. So you you have to get it from a, a film history but then just as far as seeing a masterclass in like art direction, cinema as a visual language and an incredible performance, um, you really owe it to yourself to see it. And, and I hope that I hope that it keeps getting lauded the way that it does, because I, I hate the idea of a movie like this falling farther and farther down a list uh, just because it becomes passe or, or doesn't feel relevant. But I have to tell you, watching it again last night felt even more relevant than watching it five years ago or 10 years ago and in not all great ways. I think in a way, Citizen Kane, the film is a lot like Citizen Kane, the man, in that it is amazing and incredible and important. But nothing is as big as the legend that Citizen mm. Kane has. Well like, said. And I think finally watching the film after hearing about it for, you know, 33 years, it was a bit like finding out Rosebud is just a sled. It's like, <laughs> oh, it's it's just a great film. Yeah. That's uh, it. Right. That's, that's the end go. of the story. There you go. Yeah, good. And, and that's the other thing. Like, I, I, I would hope that people don't think that this is inaccessible or it, it's so artsy that you have to go take a class in it. Like, it, no, you can just be in that world in the film for a couple of hours mm-hmm. and get a lot out of it. Yeah. And you know what? Sledding is fun too. There you I go. think it'd be great to have a sled. <laughs> I, don't, I think yeah. the sled is underrated. <laughs> slide down the side of a mountain. That's what Luke and I do when it's snowy. Does that mean yeah. SSX Tricky is the Citizen Kane of games? Yes. <laughs> Okay, there. You don't have to do another podcast. <laughs> no, we have to debate it for an hour. Okay. Uh, closing out today, uh, John. This is this is June, as people are hearing this. So, uh, mm-hmm. any clue what's going on in the the mission? I, I have no idea. I know we're just barreling toward the end of season three of Star Trek Voyager. Um, so, come join us. Podcast.roddenberry.com. There you go. Okay. Hey, Mark, you want to do the other thing? Oh, um, you can find us at uh, on social media at somewhere. Yeah, we have, do we have a Facebook or a Twitter? Mastodon? We'll have one. <laughs> uh, don't worry about that. But what you should worry about is uh, find us at patreon.com slash podcastio podcastius. Please uh, throw us a few dollars to help play the server and hosting bills. We really appreciate it. Get some bonus content there. More and more bonus content all the time. Uh, check out our other podcasts. Uh, I think Imprisoned in Prison on uh, the Prisoner Prison cast is probably wrapping up just about now, um, or just did. Uh, we have Luke Loves Pokemon, where Luke professes his love for Pokemon. We have the Game Game Show, Game Show Got Games. 
Hyrule Field Report. You're probably in the middle of playing Zelda Tears of the Kingdom right now as you're listening to this, and I'm very jealous of you, future person. Um, what else do we have? Uh, oh, uh, Occult Disney Podcast. We have Time Enough, the Twilight Zone podcast, which should be about season four by now. Um, no. No? Okay. <laughs> season three is really season long. Three. Season three is long. <laughs> Looking forward to season four. Uh, hey. I think that's all the podcasts. Okay. On on our proposal, uh, next mm. week's episode is going to be Street Fighter: The Legend of Chun Li with guest James J. Moyles. Uh, perhaps we Ooh. should talk about the Citizen Candy Gaming in that episode as well. <laughs> uh, we'll see. We'll see how much chat we get out of Street Fighter. <laughs> <laughs> I'll. Um, is Street Fighter Six coming out before that? It will be out around the same time, I think. Because that comes out. Oh in June. my god! I can't wait. You <laughs> fight a refrigerator in it. Okay. okay so well. Maybe you're the Street Fighter partner that Jay's been looking for because none of the rest of us can play with him. He's too good at fighting games. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not good. I just like playing them now and then. But, you know, um, I'm okay. okay. I'm serviceable. Also, you all should follow me on Instagram at Buscalily if you want to see pictures of Japan and Korea because I don't post on any other social media, so you might as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm currently not posting on anything and maybe for nice, the foreseeable future. Yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> okay, well, I'm off to my personal Xanadu, but that's going to be the disco one with Olivia Newton-John. There nice. we go. Yeah. I got to go have song. a shower because I've been sat here in my gym sweat this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I go make sure there aren't American police at my door. Good call. <laughs> okay, right. he's making a clap. He's clapping. He is. He is. Okay. <laughs> quite, quite the clapping going on right now. Wow, it's getting faster and more furious. Yes, perfect. That was that was an accurate recreation. <laughs> Beautiful. Oh yes, the polite golf clap. I forgot all about that. It's a gif. It's a you classic think I was just gif. Doing it for <laughs> oh, that that is not a light golf clap. That is that that is bending reality to yours clap <laughs> i built this opera house yes yes Trope. 
Dragon 